Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med Bruno Latour, som er en fransk antropolog, sociolog og filosof. Han er født i 1947 og har de sidste 3-4 årtier været en af de mest indflydelsesrige samfundsforskere i verden, faktisk. Han er en af sin generations mest berømte franske sociologer og er en, hvis teorier bliver udbredt på alverdens universiteter, og som der også er rigtig mange her i Danmark, som faktisk er uddannet efter. Bruno Latours hovedværk hedder Vi har aldrig været moderne, som udkom på fransk i 1991 og siden også udkommet på dansk i en fortræffelig oversættelse på hans Reitels forlag. Tanken i, vi har aldrig været moderne, er, at de moderne bilder ind, at man kunne dele verden op i kultur og natur, i subjekternes domæne og objekternes domæne. Og på subjekternes domæne, der var der politik, og på objekternes domæne, der var der videnskab. På den måde, vi voksede op med forestillingen om fuldstændig adskillelse af mennesker og deres omverden, subjekter og objekter. Og det gennemfører Bruno Latour en systematisk kritik af. Det er en kritik, som ligger som baggrund for den samtale, som vi har i dag. Et andet vigtigt punkt, som man skal nævne hos Bruno Latour, det er, at han er en af de samfundsforskere, der fra starten har været opmærksom på klimaforandringerne. Allerede for 30 år siden skrev han, at det kan godt være, at der var nogen, der triumferede over murens fald, men der var ikke noget at over, fordi vi stod i en krise, der var langt større end det. Han brugte faktisk udtrykket, at vi lever i ruinerne af en drøm, modernitetens drøm. Han har de senere år udgivet afskillige væsentlige bøger om klimaforandringerne, og han har været stærkt engageret i den offentlige debat om det. Og ved et særligt eksperiment op til det store COP-møde COP21 i Frankrig i 2015, der gennemspillede han sammen med sine studerende hele forhandlingsforløbet på forhånd, som de lavede en slags prækonstruktion af. Og han fortæller stolt, at han faktisk nåede frem til en aftale, der var langt bedre end den, som COP-deltagerne nåede frem til. Så Bruno Latour er på alle mulige måder en gigant. Hans seneste bog er temmelig anderledes. Det er en nærmest filosofisk fabel, der hedder After Lockdown. Det hedder den på engelsk, den er ikke kommet på dansk endnu. Det er den bog, vi tager udgangspunkt i, og så kommer vi hele verden rundt, og ikke mindst ud i universet, som vi ser på en helt anden måde, end man plejer at se den på. Bruno Latour gør i hvert fald. God fornøjelse. Good evening to our viewers and our readers here in Copenhagen, and especially good evening to you, Bruno Latour, who is with us from Paris. Thank you so much for taking your time and being with us tonight. Good evening. The main starting point for tonight's conversation will be your latest book, Bruno Latour, After Lockdown, which is such a wonderful book. It's a very, very enjoyable read. It also has a very um, interesting form that it's kind of a philosophical fable or there are some techniques from fiction and there's a, some philosophy in it as well. Could you tell us a little bit about the background of, of that book and why you chose that form? I mean, it is a COVID book. <laughs> COVID-inspired book um, because of a lockdown and also because of the um, misery that we have been all uh, through, especially the younger kids, my grandkids and my children and every, every my student and all of us. So it has a tone uh, which is a more uh, personal and let's say dramatic uh, <laughs> tone. So this one is more about uh, a new question, which is not who am I, which I'm not very interested, but where am I? 
because the idea that the COVID and the climate, which I, I consider as two, two different but related uh, uh, crises uh, or mutation is more metamorphosis actually, uh, <laughs> is putting us in, in a situation where, where uh, we have to think again where we are. I mean, not only who we are, but where we are. So this is what led me to this tone, which is unusual for my work, I agree. <laughs> and there's a, a hero from Franz Kafka who's reappearing in, in, in your work, and that is uh, Gregor Samsa. And uh, I, for Danish listeners, I'd say uh, he's the whole person in uh, Forvandling. This very, either it's a very short novel or it's a very long short story. But he's the he's the person who wakes up one morning after having disturbing dreams and finding that he's turned into an insect. And you use uh, Gregor Samsa as well. Why, why did you choose him? Well, I thought it was a good metaphor for what we felt when we were <laughs> locked down. Because suddenly we could not even reach uh, a restaurant or we couldn't go out or we... So uh, there was a, a body uh, feeling we had to respect uh, distance, wear a mask. I mean, there were enough things in our bodily uh, 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 arrangement uh, or bodily axis, uh, which was very modified. And that's why the notion of metamorphosis was important. Of course, I turned the story around uh, and make it a positive <laughs> metamorphosis uh, to, com to contrast uh the the gregor transformation with the parents who are not transformed who are still human in the old way so to speak and who are so stuck in their definition of very narrow definition of themselves so paradoxically it's the one who undergo the metamorphosis which liberate itself from the whole sort of uh, ideas uh his parents have about what it is to be human and what do we, what, why do we go to work and so on and so forth. So for instance, it's an amusing thing, but as you know, there are four millions of people in America who didn't go back to work. <laughs> uh, and, and in the novel, the novella, when Gregor Samson don't go to work, immediately there is a guy coming, the boss is coming to his door and say, you have to go back to work. And he goes in. <laughs> sort of stack. <laughs> so there, there is a whole uh, a whole set of metaphors, and as usual, to capture a, a, a dramatic moment in history, you have to use myth because that's where the power of, of understanding is located. But there's also, uh, you know, when I read Kafka originally, the Diefverwandlung, uh, the transformation. Of course, you find that it's horrible that he wakes up one one morning. He's a human being. He's turned into an insect. And his father, who, like you said, is the old kind of human being, he just wants to crush this cockroach. But it seems in, in, in your book, like you say, that there's something hopeful about it, that he kind of rediscovers another way of being human, which is all the way through your book, this instead of thinking of the classical human beings, we should think of ourselves, or modern human beings to be exact, actually, we should think of ourselves as terrestrials. Yeah, it's, it's one of the effects of a metamorphosis, and that's why the power of a myth, because it's really, Kafka invented a myth, uh, is so profound that it's, it becomes an insect. And uh, as you know, there is a huge literature now from all sorts of ecological uh, thinkers and activists and uh, biologists and animal rights people 
to make us uh, sort of resonate with living forms, including insects like lichens, uh, lichens, I think we say, uh, trees and so on and so forth. Uh, so it's literal. I mean, it becomes an insect. But of course, it's an insect which is so liberated from the narrow constraint of his uh, fathers and mother and boss. So this is, of course, a, a complete fiction of my part. But uh, in a way, the COVID is making us liberate from the old idea about being autonomous, independent, uh, developing, uh, and so on and so forth. So. All of that is, is a play on, 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 on mythology to capture what is really a tragedy we are in, so to speak. So uh, that's why I think the, the becoming insect of, of Kafka is so interesting. Not of Kafka, I mean, of, of Gregor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, um, and in, this, in this other way of looking at the, the, the transformation as a kind of liberation, there, there is this optimistic reading of the potential of the lockdown. And I think there was a lot of us thinking during lockdown that everything we wanted to change in society, we could change after lockdown, that returning to normalcy, that would be a transformative event. And to be fair, I think there are actually some signs of it happening somewhere that you saw cars being evicted from some cities in Europe. You saw some some reforms in, 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 in America and you saw some people going to the countryside, picking up new connections with their, with their surroundings. So I think there, there were some signs of that, but looking back now, how, how do you see this end of lockdown and return to normalcy? How did it appear? Well, I was on no illusion that the world after would be completely transformed. But uh, as we work with uh, Nicolas Schulz and he's doing lots of statistics on that, uh, it's clear that a doubt has been introduced into many minds. I was mentioning before the people who don't go back to their city and underpaid jobs, uh, waiting for something better. Uh, we learn about how the economy, which was supposed to be irreversible, is suddenly reversed. So even though it looks like a reprise, a, a sort of a continuation of the world of before, and it's largely this because all the powers are, are in this direction, uh, the extension of a doubt about uh, the, the, the way we were living before, I think, is here to stay. And its effect is not, uh, is not finished, especially <laughs> because the COVID insists um, quite a lot uh, with every new variant. So uh, we, are, we are realizing that it's not just an epidemic or pandemic. It's there to stay. So, to, so in that sense, it's a, it's a change of understanding on where we live. So my only interest now is, is in this question that it's a change of cosmology, it's a change of the way of where we are. I think one of the reasons why it's so difficult to make people change their mind about ecological questions, because we, we, we want them to change their mind. No, we have to change their world. Uh, and that's only when you, you know you are in a different world, basically the viral world, that you begin very quickly to change your ways of being and your attitudes. Uh, so this is why I insist so much on this, uh, on this question of change of cosmology. And of course, the virus is a great uh, professor. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also in your book, which is kind of a mythological book in the sense that you use 
new words to describe the world that are not necessarily concept, but 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 that are more playing with the imagination. And you you take up this concept that you've been using before, Gaia, uh, and and suggest that we should understand the Earth as Gaia. What is implied in this Gaia uh, figure? Well, Gaia is the name of a new cosmology, because it it it's precisely this new understanding. I mean, it's not so new, but it's still very slow to get into the mind <laughs> uh, that uh, that the virus is exactly. Uh, again, a proof of that, that uh, the world in which we live and we have lived is uh, made by living forms, and including temperature, including uh, the, the, the balance of, atmos of atmospheric gases uh, and all the rest of the living forms. So it's a very simple idea. I'm always amazed how difficult it is to get <laughs> the idea across when it's so simple uh, and, and, and when it's now built on so many uh, excellent uh, earth science. Basically, it's what the polite word for Gaia is Earth system science, but that's a very non-mythical definition. <laughs> it's much better to take to take a, a real name, which is also, of course a mythical name uh, as well. And I've done lots of works in with philosophers, with uh, scientists, um, trying to make this argument of Gaia understandable. Because that, it's only when it's understandable that you say, "Ah, I'm in the." Lead. I'm in the world, which is the world of living forms and built by living forms, including viruses and bacteria, which are, as you know, I mean, the most important component of that, of that living form. So it, 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 it makes people feel very differently where, where, is, uh, where, where we live, so to speak, because then suddenly you realize you are not in a world of object that you could actually uh, uh, master. You are in a world of, of living forms, just like the virus with which you have to accommodate. We are not at war with Omicron. We are trying to find a, a sort of modus vivendi, which is an excellent term. It's a modus vivendi, it's exactly <laughs> that. And, and that's what Gaia uh, is actually uh, implying. And then, of course, there are lots of difficulty, uh, philosophical and scientific, to understand how Gaia works. But there is a whole literature now on that. But it's still not accepted, even though when people are in the COP, like in Glasgow, they were under the power of Gaia because they try, after all, to maintain something which is like a, a self-regulation because they want to keep it inside the two degrees. And if they want to keep it inside <laughs> two degrees, it means that they accept the notion of regulation by living forms. But when you say, ah, but if you do that, then the scientific notion of Gaia should be accepted. They say, oh, no, it's too complicated, it's too bizarre, <laughs> etc." So it, it's very strange. I mean, I, I've been working for now 15 years on, on the originality of Gaia, and I'm still working a lot. I mean, But I think actually that in the core of the climate movement, there's also some resistance to Gaia in the sense that it is often said that we are the humans, we are the agents in the universe, and we inherited this innocent nature, this green organic nature. And we are kind of the, the actors who are supposed to keep it, like it's something that we should take care of. And I was thinking when I read after lockdown that sometimes we do that here in the newspaper as well, that it's kind of appealing to people to do something about climate change, like, uh, this innocent green organic earth was given to us, We're, we should protect it. And isn't it true that at the heart of this thought of the innocent green earth, 
there's a misunderstanding of Gaia. Yeah, because there is, it's actually nothing innocent in Gaia. I mean, yeah. as, as in Marguerite Slay said one, one time, Gaia is a bitch. <laughs> and, 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 and it's a terrifying invention. Uh, but it's made of living form. This is, this is the important one. It has nothing, nothing innocent in it. And the idea that we could take care of it is ridiculous. I mean, the, the, the size and the length of time of the two actors, human and living forms, are, are too sort of distant. What we did do, actually, is to uh, modify our own condition of, of life uh, very quickly and in a very dramatic uh, sense. In that sense, with gas and, and oil, we, we are able to be big, but we are not in control. I think James Lovelock, who is the inventor of Gaia, says uh, one, something like that. Uh, the idea that a human could take care of Gaia is like imagining a, a goat be a gardener. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. No, no, there's nothing, nothing innocent anywhere. We, we are in, in, in this. Uh, Maelstrom, so to so to speak, or uh, what's the call of a, a manège, merry-go-round, which is yeah. a ge geochemical cycles which have been sort of hooked up by living forms for millions of years, billions of years, and inside which we are uh, more like uh, human, or uh, what should I say, uh, uh, in a washing machine, you know. Yes. <laughs> this is more the more situation. It's nothing nice. Nothing innocent. I'd say nothing green in a way. <laughs> nothing peaceful, that's for sure. No, but I remember when James Lovelock's book came out, uh, and it must be about 20 years ago, isn't it? I think it was in 2000. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. And I think, and I remember it was a shock for us here at the newspaper because this was the first time that he, that we, I think, a lot of us really understood what feedback mechanism and these loops meant that that we were not the subjects and the nature was the object, that, that it was acting and we were acting. There was a very difficult, there was a very complex interplay between mm. our way of acting and these uh, loopholes and feedback mechanisms and all this. And I think this understanding of feedback mechanisms and that nature is, and, and the guy is working, it's working its own changes that are affected, but not caused by our changes. Does this not, when now, when you look at, uh, when you hear people talk about climate, they understand, they understand these uh, loops and feedback. Do you not there see a new understanding of nature? That this guy, uh, that you say it's difficult to get people to understand it. Yes. So what I'm suggesting is that when people are actually talking about these loops and, and when they're talking about feedback mechanisms. Oh, you're perfectly right. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a good introduction to the, actually we, we have a big exhibition in Karlsruhe which finishes uh, in, in a few days, critical zone, which is entirely on that. I mean, to bring people inside the, the loops, so to speak, so that they can understand uh, what Lynn Margulis and, and James Lovelock uh, advocated. But I think the most important critique, which is wrongly headed, uh, is to immediately frame Gaia as a motherly figure, uh, overly, uh, I mean, a sort of, of state, uh, which is which is of course not the case, and and there is nothing motherly in 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 Gaia. And actually, the mythology of Gaia, which is an old Greek uh, uh, figure of mythology, has nothing nothing nice about it. She is a cunning, destroying, uh, complicated uh, bitch again, as, as to use the word uh, of Lynn Margulis. 
So that's why I like the word, in spite of all the critique, because it's a mythological term, which is extremely interesting, very dramatic, and it's a scientific science uh, whose, whose beauty and interest because of his feedback things uh, is marvelous. So uh, Lovelock was right to use the word, even though he was criticized for all the connotation, but the connotation are imposed on it by, the, by his adversaries, <laughs> by people who say, ah, well, then you talk about Mother Earth. No, no, it's not Mother Earth. It's viruses, it's COVID. COVID is what Kaya is made of. COVID plus bacteria, largely, then plus lichen, and then you add a few other things. <laughs> but that's what Gaia is made of. Another point in, in after lockdown, uh, which comes down to also this understanding of Gaia and the virus, is that you say that it, it, it exposed the universal crisis of science. Uh, you write that that in, in in the book, and we there were a lot of people, and also in Uateria, you were very critical of this understanding of the post factual world, and this let the let the scientists uh, decide. So in the beginning of the pandemic, there were a lot of talk in the educated class about now finally science is back in order, and people are trusting the experts, and the politicians should obey science, and and. Uh, And how do you see this interplay between science and politics after COVID or during COVID? Well, I was not surprised because I have been studying this question for about 50 years. So uh, the idea that suddenly because of a pandemic, people will follow scientific uh, science knowledge uh, and apply knowledge uh, and politicians and people will follow seem to be completely uh, absurd. Also because I, I'd done quite a lot of work on Pasteur uh, in the 19th century. So I knew that uh, even at, at this time, it was not, not at all the case. On the other hand, I think what is really interesting that uh, people learn about the practice and limits and uh, beauty and speed and slowness of uh, science as it is practiced. So, I mean, we, we can simultaneously be amazed by the vaccine story and the speed at which, and then we learned a lot about epidemiology, the difficulty of counting, etc. In, in a way, uh, I think it's the first time that a major crisis like this one see uh, scientific practice as completely part of the event, so to speak, without trying to be a sort of uh, a view from nowhere, looking at the viruses and telling us do this and do this and do that. Uh, it's not what happened. Of course, there was a lot of confusion between politics and science, but that's <laughs> as old as science. So that's why I was not surprised. I mean, it started with Archimedes, and, 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 and so it's an old story. But in terms of learning the practice of science every day and the limit and the beauty yes, of it, uh, I, think, I think it was a, it is, because it's still going on, uh, a positive experience. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm too optimistic. Uh, and of course, it's irritating for, for scientists not to be uh, believed. Um, but on the other hand, they, they have a very naive idea of, of how an, uh, any information just spread uh, to billions of people, because now we are talking about billions of people. Um, so I think it was, it, it, it was a, <laughs> a positive aspect of that uh, question. What we have been advocating for years in sociology of science study the practice of science and not the ideology of science is in a way um, vindicated. Of course, there's also the fake news stories, but that's another uh, 
another question, which complicates also <laughs> the spread of the information. Yes, but be, because it's like there's this dialectic between some being against experts and others saying, well, experts have the final truth on, on our world. So you have this, which is very bad in America, that you have people not trusting anything on one hand, and people who says, well, you should all accept the, the facts of experts, like, like they have all the answers to everything once and for all. And then there's the other part of it, which I agree with you, has been very interesting during this pandemic, that you see how people investigate together something that is taking place and that everything could also be proven wrong later. Everything you find out that it's not a process of having the final facts, but it's kind of a collective process of uh, of discovering what's going on together. Yeah. Of course, the, the collective was not very much involved, at least in France. I don't know about Denmark, but there was an immense uh, confusion of how the public would participate in the decision. So we were actually um, uh, submitted to a very bad mix between expert and politician. And expert and science is not the same thing. I mean, it's almost the opposite. Scientist and expertise is two different things. Expertise is a stabilized, simplified, dumbed-down version of, of science. Uh, and that's exactly. the part that politicians get. Uh, so it was very confusing. But this confusion is, is part of, uh, of science uh, in society for the last uh, 2,000 years. So it's not very surprising. But it's accelerated by the size, the number of scientists, uh, even things which are extraordinary for an historian of science uh, is that the story of the discovery of a, of a RNA uh, vaccine was immediately in the press in great detail. Yes. <laughs> I mean, we don't need to have any story of it. It, it was uh, told as, as, as a feat uh, extraordinary uh, quickly uh, and simultaneously the failure of epidemiology to, to, to follow the thing, the numbers of things we had to learn about the difficulty of, of uh, of vaccination, etc., and of course the anti-vax uh, movement, which in itself is an interesting, even very confusing uh, element of a, of a story. So, no, I think the COVID is, I say, it's a professor, and it repeats. You don't understand? Okay, I go to Omicron, and then I go to Mu, and then I go to <laughs> until you understand. But we are in a world where which is made of viruses, basically. I mean, it, it, uh, the default position is virus. And uh, yeah, and I also think that it's actually, to some extent, positive that it's not just a normal position and then a state of exception and then going back to normalcy. That this state that we're in right now, there's actually something to be learned from, from this very interesting stage where, where you see that there's always this exchange between yeah, us. I think it, 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 it's what is, is sort of, tutoring us into the, what do I call the, the cosmological uh, change. It's especially interesting because I've shown, uh, and that's been shown by Lovelock again and many Earth scientists, but the climate itself, uh, I mean, the temperature and the composition of the gas, it is itself under the control of uh, billions of years of viruses and bacteria. It's actually their work, so to speak, their invention so at the micro level, which is a pandemic and the viruses, which is attacking us, and at the macro level, which is the, the question of climate, we, we are again changing the composition of the world. Of the world. I mean, literally, I mean, it, it, we are made 
of viruses and bacteria, and the climate is made of viruses and bacteria as well. So this is why the, the, the whole COVID experience is so immensely interesting. That's what I've tried to capture in the book, which is uh, it is something which, which is not only mind-opening, but it's also something which say, ah, then I am in the world with, for which the COVID epidemic pandemic uh, is more representative than in the world I was before, where I would say, I don't know, the steam engine would have been a good example. No, no. I mean, steam engine is still interesting, but it, it's not typical of the world we are in now. So you're right to say, I mean, it, 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 it's exactly that. that the, it's not a crisis. It's a, it's, it's a condition. And I was hoping, I think there were many that were hoping in the beginning that this would lead to a general breakthrough for a new climate awareness. And, and I don't think that happened. And I, and I think it has to do with another thing that's, that's very precisely put in your book, namely the distinction between the world we live in and the world we live off. And you, you put all before saying, well, when America said after the Rio summit that they didn't want to change American way of life, it was like saying, well, they didn't care about the rest of the world. They wanted, they didn't care about the effect of their ways of life to, to the rest of the world. I think it was George Herbert Walker Bush who, who, who said that. And it seems still that it's a very, very hot puzzle for the climate movement that we live in states and in these separate nation states, we expect that we have the right to consume and we have the right to transport ourselves and to produce and that we are living off uh, resources from, from other parts of the world. Uh, how do you see this, uh, Anna? How, how do you see this dilemma between the world we live in and the world we live off in a climate perspective? Well, it, it, it is a, one of the consequences of globalization by the virus, so to speak, because the virus is, is a globalizer in its own way. First, because it was very quickly spread everywhere, and also because it is actually <laughs> mobilizing all the states simultaneously, even though every state tried to, to do its own thing, um, even though the Europe tried to do something more intelligent. But the, the, the very notion of what is a nation state is also, of course, uh, put into question by the viruses and by, of course, the climate uh, question. So again, the two resonate with one another, but the key innovation, so to speak, which is why we are so interested with uh, Nicolas Schultz about geosocial class, is that the classes are actually not limited to the society of Denmark, or the society of France, or the society of Germany, but they include uh, climatologically, and they include uh, virologically, um, the other part of the world to which they are connected. So this is why in, in this book, what we are talking about, I, I'm trying to define territory or land or, or turf or whatever we call it, soil, uh, as uh, what we depend on and not where we are. I mean, in terms of uh, sort of topologically or GPS, uh, uh, what you have on your, on your, on your <coughs> cell phone which says, okay, you are here. Well, no, we are here once you know what the connections with which you are, of which you are dependent, are actually uh, defined, explicited, and understood. 
so that's why uh, this this nice uh, metaphors uh, proposed by Charbonnier, the life, the world we live in and the world we live off. And of course, the whole nation state has been invented in the United States, but Denmark also and France and, and, and all the European state as to avoid this connection. And then there is commercial connections and there is uh, international connections. But the whole idea is to be able to, to limit so that you live in and you live off something which you don't have to share rights with. Basically, a, a very simple definition of the ecological uh, mutation is that this, this divide is impossible to sustain. But it's very difficult to imagine what is the state, yes, which is the state that takes that into question. And of course, again, only the Europe, uh, European experience so far is, is trying to do something because precisely it's not a nation. It's not exactly a nation. It's a very strange, complex experiment beyond and above and not exactly above the nation state, but trying to, to, to make the notion of nation state complicated and diffuse. Some people criticize Europe for that, but I think it's precisely why it's so interesting. It's, it, it's the only experiment on earth about a change in, in the definition of what it is to no longer be a nation state in the classical sense. I mean, it's still, it's still not achieved, but it, it, it's, it's experimental. At least somewhere on earth, there is an experiment on that question. <laughs> I, I remember that uh, we talked some years ago before the COP21 uh, in Paris, and you were doing this experiment with your students. And I was very impressed by that experiment that you were kind of making it, uh, you were reconstructing, no, actually pre-constructing, because it was before, it was before the summit. And you are going through all the negotiations between all the all the countries. And you said at the time that you have some of the best of your students who are acting as the Chinese, so make it as hard as possible to go through. But that was before, you know, the COP uh, 21 in, in Paris in 2015. It was not representing states. It was representing states and the outside of states and with equal representation. So half of the thing was states but half of a representative were the ocean, the air, and also the lobbies. So for instance, the, the, which was very interesting, the, 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 the oil lobby was explicitly in the assembly as defending its interests instead of hiding them in the lobbies precisely. So it was, it was, a, it was an experiment configured to try to, to it was a fiction of course, but to mimic what it would be if, if you had the state and the outside of the state equally represented by other representatives, so to speak. And, and that's what we explained. Sorry, I interrupted your question. No, 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 no. Uh, so I, I was just very curious about uh, how you see this COP system at this point, because you're one of, the, I think, few uh, intellectuals and sociologists who's, who've been writing about climate change for decades and for a very, very long time, just after the fall of the Berlin Wall, when there was this superficial triumphant atmosphere that we won and all the bad demons of history were gone and now it's just spread this uh, American democracy and capitalism to the rest of the world. You're saying, well, no, actually we haven't won. Actually, we are here with a big crisis. So you've been in this, in this effort for a very, very long time and you've been investigating it. And at the time you were somewhat optimistic about this cup process, or at least you saw the potential of it. And how, coming out of COP26, how do you see the potential of this COP system today? 
the COP is only one part of a, of a very complicated mechanism, which is studied by people who are much better informed uh, than me. The, the Glasgow was a fiasco because it was led by the worst politician apart from Trump, uh, <laughs> namely Johnson. So it, it was, and it was unprepared and, and, and the English were busy with other stupid things like Brexit. So they didn't pay any attention to the, to the question. But apart from that, COP is a very important part of, of the whole sort of shift of, in, in cosmology, precisely, as I said before, because they are accepting to submit collectively to a force that is superior to them, of which they realize they are actually responsible in some sort. I mean, in one of the loops, one of the many loops we talked about, one of them is actually the activity of the nation state themselves, which, because we live in the Anthropocene, are actually at the size of a geological or climatological question, which didn't exist before, of course. So I think, for me, I take the COP meetings like my fiction in 2015 <laughs> as a very important experiment in thinking differently about what it is to be a head of state, a head of state that submit its agenda to the question of keeping inside two degrees is not the heads of state of 50 years ago. It's a different type of power distribution, so to speak. And in, in, it, it's probably the most interesting aspect of the COP for me. Uh, and of course, there are lots of juridical, juridical questions, so to speak, uh, a, a, a mass of interesting uh, thing to study. But uh, I respect the COP a lot because of the very interesting invention of a, how, how does the scientists work, how they are submitted their work to diplomatic encounters. I mean, precisely, it's not a case where you separate the science and the politics. It's, it's an attempt at trying to link the two together in an interesting way. So I think it is a very interesting uh, fiction. Yes, and I, I really, I always, it's a double experience all the time, I think, because there is something beautiful of about the event in itself and these people gathering with this implied obligation and as you say, submitting to this authority. On the other hand, you always have the somewhat disappointing outcomes. I want to ask you here, when we don't have a lot of time left, that we've seen the, some elections in Europe over the last couple of years that have produced some quite positive environmental outcomes that we've seen, you know, we've seen new commitments, at least in, in Germany, that has been lacking for, for all the Merkel era, that they've, they've really, really been lacking in, in green commitments. And, and, and when, when we look at the French uh, election, it's very difficult to find out why, what's going on in, in France. I mean, some of your, your thinking, your thinkers, your sociologists, your economists, they are, or you are inspiring the left all over the world. But it seems that in France, you don't have any real left candidate for the presidency. So are we underestimating it? Or, or, and do you see any hopes for a climate breakthrough at the French election? No, <laughs> no. Uh, there is an interesting guy who is running as, a, as an ecological, uh, and he, he does a campaign, which is not bad, but the point, you cannot do a campaign if there is no people behind you. And uh, the, the, the millions of people are not behind ecology at all in France. They are still stuck with a sort of left, vague left. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about the left. Of course, we have us yes. upon even considering the question. <laughs> Neither Macron nor, nor, of course, the extreme right, which is obsessed by something else, which is completely uh, irrelevant to the present day. 
uh, but the left is still completely traumatized by having been destroyed and having never worked uh, another solution. They see ecology as something added to their usual social commitment, which would be good, except uh, there are at least today seven candidates, maybe eight if we add the Trotskyite. <laughs> so so uh, now maybe nine. So this is this this doesn't make any sense. So there is no left in the election, and and the poor guy who is doing the ecology part, we we will have a very small. Uh, no no we are not like Germany at all, uh, because the work has not been done at the level of the people. There is no people behind ecology in France. Uh, really, there are lots of interesting activists, thinkers, uh, a few journals, uh, but nothing at the level of the. Uh, necessary hegemony. This is the argument of our little memo, is actually to, to list the, the series of problems which should have been studied and discussed carefully before running into an election where you're bound to, to lose, so to speak. No, France is, France, so far, I mean, might change in the next election, but we have to wait five years. So we shouldn't expect a green breakthrough from, from, from France. Uh... I, don't, I don't think so. I might be wrong because I'm not a, a no. A political analyst, but everything which I feel is is, is that it. No, you you don't run an election on a, with seven candidates uh, on on one same the same topic, so to speak. <laughs> it it simply means the political work has not been done. I have one last question for for you, which is that you have been following, describing, interpreting learning us to understand this climate situation for a very very long time, and we're very grateful for that. There are a lot of young people, like my children who are 16 and 19, there are a lot of young people who find it very, very difficult to keep up hope that when they are confronted with climate change, it's very difficult to talk about, but it's also very difficult for them not to talk about it. It's the most important thing, and at times it seems like the most unbearable things. What would be your advice for young people, or what could you say that over the years you've taught from being, you've learned from being part of this movement that made you hopeful? We have no other solution than to be hopeful. And uh, one solution is to watch the film, uh, Don't Look Up, because it's actually a very powerful <laughs> film, even though it's, it's not a very nice, joyful film and not optimistic, precisely because it's not optimistic, precisely because it, it's, it's dark. Uh, it has a revealing feature of a situation, which is, in fact, the only way to, to get... Uh, Hopeful. The question is no more to, it's not necessarily to be hopeful, it's to be there at the place. That is why it's called, Where Am I? In the French uh, title of the book you, you, we were talking about is actually, Où suis-je? Et non pas qui suis-je? And uh, so I think right now we don't need hope, we need to know where we are. And then action will follow. But you cannot sort of imagine a sort of hope uh, like in the old days when, okay, let's go to work and we'll find a solution. We have to do that, of course. But after having understood the situation, and I think the film, the Netflix film, is actually a, a very powerful way. And lots of no, nobody finds it funny, <laughs> which is quite interesting. No one finds it funny. They say, ah, that's where we are. And uh, lots of climate scientists say, oh, it's exactly what I think I am. Uh, Mon bio today in The Guardian say, I also cried on television like the lady in the film and so on. Have you seen it? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. Yes. Everybody yes, has seen it, which is, which is why it's so interesting. Yes, and everybody has been discussing it. 
But anyways, you've been very helpful teaching us where we are or trying to find out where we are. We're very thankful for your work and for your inspiration. And thank you for taking your time, Bruno Latour. Thank you. Thank you. Det var så min samtale med Bruno Latour. I næste uge, der taler jeg med den iransk-amerikanske forsker Lale Khalili. Hun har skrevet en helt fantastisk bog, der hedder The Sanos of War and Trade, som handler om den maritime kapitalisme, som hun kalder det, vil sige kapitalismen på havene. Den handler om arbejdsvilkårene for de mennesker, der sejler vores varer rundt i hele verden, og som udgør de forsyningskæder, som vi har fundet ud af, vi er blevet så frygtelig afhængige af. Den handler om verdens havnesystem, og den handler om de regler, der regulerer vores handel på havene, og den handler om Mellemøstens historie fra den gamle kolonialisme ind til en ny form for kolonialisme, ind til de systemer, vi har i dag. Og så er det en fuldstændig fantastisk bog, som sætter skønlitteratur sammen med teori, med dybe arkivstudier. Og så har Lala Khalili selv været ombord på de her store tankskibe. Alt det fortæller hun om i næste uges udgave af Langsomme Samtaler. Tak for nu.